Welcome to Wage Cucking with JMO. All right, uh, welcome to another episode of the Shitcoin.com podcast, Wage Cucking with JMO. I have a guest today, my friend David. David, how's it going? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on, actually. Just uh, before we start, uh, give me a little bit of your history in terms of how you got into crypto and what you, I guess a little bit of what you're working on right now. Yeah, happy to yeah talk a little bit more about my past, but you know more so uh, happy to contribute to the podcast and thanks for having me. I guess I started off my career as investment banker at Morgan Stanley, you know, the boring old stuff. But then when to do my own startup in the event-based social networking space, kind of like benchmarking Eventbrite or meetup.com for the China market. So sold that off and then went on to business school in China where I essentially, you know, caught the sort of ICO wave in 2016 and 17 and really never looked back since. So during business school, I also worked at a large venture capital firm called Qiming Venture Partners. They run about $9 billion today investing in like early consumer internet companies like Xiaomi, you know, Billy Billy, you know, C-Trip and, and whatnot. So so really got into it during my venture days, looking for essentially like early stage venture opportunities, you know, looked at a lot of sort of early stage projects like, you know, Ontology, um, Neo, and all of those sort of Chinese layer ones uh, yep. back in the days. So even though like Qiming wasn't able to participate, you know, I, I participated a lot into just secondary market offerings, but then really wanted a more institutional look on how I wanted to investing. So then I went to Hobby to lead their, you know, global investments um, where I led investments into a lot of, you know, similar layer ones, but for sort of the global markets like, you know, Polkadot, Algorand, Terra, etc. So during my three years there, essentially ran investments for a while and then went to lead Hobby Labs, which is like their internal incubator accelerator program to look for some of the best assets and, you know, help them list on Hobby, but at the same time, you know, help them sort of get users uh, in China and help them with sort of developing engagement and whatnot. So dating back to 2021, you know, I sort of really made my foothold in the US, but, you know, during that time, Hobie actually wasn't very actively investing, but there was a ton of opportunities in the US as for uh, venture capital investing. So then I spun out and, and did my own firm called OP Crypto, where, you know, Hobie, Bybit, a lot of other exchanges invested as sort of early uh, LPs into the fund, but also got a lot of institutional backing from Wall Street and a lot of sort of the US institutions like Galaxy, DCG, etc. Mm -hmm. Been doing that for about the past year and a half, have about 20 portfolios thus far. And, and yeah, happy to you know, share more about, you know, sort of what we do there. Uh, that's great. It's uh, it's almost like a, bas a blast from the past um, yeah. when you mentioned the 2017 ICO wave and uh, projects like NEO. NEO was formerly AntShares. I remember when well, when it was AntShares and I, I was buying it as an Ethereum competitor. Um, I'm not sure what they're doing today or if, <laughs> like how they're doing, but yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty cool that you got into the crypto um, during that time. It was like a pretty exciting time. Uh, I, I think during that time though, the market was a pretty immature I would describe it in terms okay. of like a lot of the ICO projects that are uh, were brought in front of VC companies to invest in. They would issue a token and they would have like a general mandate as to, to what they wanted to do, but it wasn't exactly clear what the, the value of the token was, what, what the right. business proposition was, but it, it didn't seem to matter. Everything went up until um, it, it didn't. So I wanted to kick this off with the general discussion on uh, crypto VCs. Uh, you have quite a bit of experience. So one of the things I've been thinking about recently with the whole market turbulence, I'd say from the, the bull market from starting in like 2020, maybe end of 2019, where 
where Bitcoin ran up just from like just over 10K to almost 70K and then the bear market that ensued after. So a, a lot of these uh, crypto uh, VC funds that they take outside investment and they sort of derive their model from traditional finance where you have like a, like a two and 20 model or, or uh, something similar to that. However, it, it seems like it's a pretty big issue um, in terms of these big funds that don't really reflect the volatility of crypto. For example, in like 2020, if a fund has that um, that carry model of let's say two and 20 and they're up like 400, 500%, which is not that unreasonable. I mean, just holding Bitcoin would get you up 400, 500%. And then a lot, a lot of these same funds um, in the ensuing years are down like 60, 70, 80%. So their, their high watermark is virtually unattainable after that, right? If you operate one of these funds and you are, are looking at the condition of your fund and you see that like you, you took a performance fee at the end of 2021, and then now you have to like quadruple your fund in order to get another performance fee. The incentives and the funds aren't really aligned. So I, do you do you see this problem in, in funds and do you have yeah, a um, solution? So it depends on how funds are structured. For, for our fund in particular, we don't have this problem because we only take carry when we distribute capital, right? So any mm -hmm. like unrealized gains, like we don't take carry on, right? Mm -hmm. So like our investors are always the first ones to get money before we as fund managers get money for ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. You know, management fee obviously is, is what keeps sort of the shop running, you know, our processes and, and sort of our, our analysts on board, but everything else other than that is always our LPs first. Uh, I think what you're talking about is like a lot of sort of funds are in the hybrid model, right? Where they not only do venture, which they side pocket, but they yeah. also have sort of a secondary market. Yeah, uh, they do a little bit of everything, right? They're like all inclusive, yeah. a bit of trading, a bit of arbitrage, a bit of venture capital. Yeah, yeah. So I think some firms, I mean, obviously I don't run one of those firms, so I'm not the best person to speak mm -hmm. uh, of this, but I think some firms do take carry, but then once they're down, like they give some of that money back. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is that like they have a hurdle rate essentially, right? So it's whatever they guarantee uh, X percent you know, return uh, year over year. And then until they sort of hit that return, they take profits for everything that's beyond that, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, I think amongst the funds that aggressively take year over year carry, that that's sort of a, a frowned upon model, right? So any LP yeah. investor, like in that sort of LPA, you should probably shouldn't agree with in the first place. Mm -hmm. But there are definitely funds that do do that. And like, as you said, like it just almost, they, they sometimes they just choose like, shut down the fund, which is- Yeah, yeah, they, they, they sort of, they, they yeah, sort of but, just give up, right? Yeah, yeah, they, it's certainly immoral or they move on to the next fund or, re yeah. re or whatever. But yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, like you, you just wanna, like that's the importance of LPs doing diligence of the managers and also reading the docs to reflect proper incentive structure. So I think the way that we do it, I, I think is sort of best industry practice is that like, you know, LPs should always be the ones getting money first. Yeah. So, ever do so like if that's not done then you know i, I think that's the best way to align incentives all no I'd, I'd agree with that uh so talk to me a little bit about uh, op crypto yeah. I guess your general investment thesis, maybe if you're looking for, in general, what, what kind of projects you invest in, are they equity deals, are they token deals? Is there a general time frame for these investments that you generally look for? Just yeah. basic stuff like that. Yeah. So moving to the US in 2020, um, and there's a couple of months before setting up a fund, I, I saw a really big void in that none of the Western projects really understand what's happening in Asia. Mm -hmm. And there's no like institutional fund manager within the US markets that can really help them get access to Asia markets 
you know, help them with exchange listings and ultimately, you know, help them really um, launch their product uh, within sort of the massive retail consumer base that Asia has to provide. So essentially in 2021, uh, I launched OB Crypto to really fill this void in, in being able to help a lot of these Western founders, you know, go to market in Asia and really capture a lot of the traction that that's happening in that side of the world. So essentially what we look for, obviously is first, like founders actually need our help. I think that's extremely important, right? Like you don't want to just be, you know, follow all money and FOMO into projects that, you know, look good and, you know, other investors have invested in. I think one key thing that we look for is like founders that we can actually provide a significant value add that yeah. we can demonstrate you know, a lot of our value in, in, you know, being their investor. Right. Mm -hmm. Second, I think it's like investing in sub verticals where you really understand. Right. So, you know, I used to be a pro gamer. So like we, we did a lot of gaming investments in the early onset of 2021, like before really gaming took off mm -hmm. in, in a major way. So a lot of our early portfolios, as you can see, are like gaming infrastructure type of projects, you know, like Mary Circle that, you know, was back when sort of the gaming guild model was still a thing, mm -hmm. you know, they, they raised quite a lot of money on Balancer and eventually listen on Binance. And they still are, are one of the biggest, you know, gaming ecosystem uh, investments that we've done. Gaming infrastructure, for like uh, asset uh, interoperability, like Stardust, right? Even though they don't have a token, but they, you know, work as an underlying layer to make sure that, you know, all assets are, are captured and, and in the right way, right? Um, NFT lend, uh, like gaming and NFT type lending, like re NFT. Yeah, a bunch of those cheese projects that, you know, we deem to be application layer infrastructure where like, it's infra that eventually helps for mainstream adoption for Web3 applications, right? How do we make, gaming experiences better for the normal user, right? How do we make digital collectibles like something that people can hold on for long term and have utility for, right? How do we make like, I guess, these socialified projects, like the new type of Web3 social applications that people will use and choose choose to, you know, contribute and, and produce content for uh, rather than, you know, Twitter and Instagram and, and what we have right now, right? So a lot of these like more native application layers that we essentially invest in, the middleware or the infra layer for that improves and enhances user engagement and, and experiences. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the the value add you were talking about. So um, maybe I want to say like four years ago. Uh, I know you have experience at at Huobi, but a, a lot of the a lot of the projects that were launching at the time, the, the value add for the big funds or the the big company exchanges that had like VC arms was basically just exchange listings, right? Like getting their their token on an exchange, like a major exchange like Binance or Huobi or uh, OKX or something like that, just to get like uh, the circulating supply moving. But but today I, I feel like the markets matured a bit, where like uh, a lot of the the old VC models were basically to get into the early stages of these companies just from name like you see it with like the the x3 arrows capitals guys that they they basically put in money in in every single early stage project and, and a lot of the allocations that they took they were reselling or they were just like looking to exit on uh the open market but uh, specifically to today um as the crypto market matures a bit um what specifically do you think that like the big vc fund should be doing as a value add to the the companies that they invest in Right, right. I think there's like actually significant differences between like what big VC funds add versus what like smaller, you know, vintage funds that focus on pre-stage mm -hmm. add, right? So I think when specifically mentioned about bigger stage funds, right, I, I think 
you know, paradigm is probably the couple of the substack where they help with, you know, tokenomics, like a lot of engineering support, right? I think that's something that's a, a lot of it is undervalued, right? Like how much engineering support an early stage project need from the VC side, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's just difficult enough, even just sourcing a developer for yourself, but having like in, in-house developers really help, you know, push sort of the traction of the project pretty far. And also I think like uh, most, I think big VCs now is like acting as, sort of exchanges of the past, right? Like I think obviously right now, centralized exchange listening other than Binance is not as relevant as prior where like the exchanges give you that stamp of approval, right? Whereas yeah. like, I think now it's like a lot of what the marquee names for big VCs is like more so acting in place of that exchange. So it's like projects need validation, like projects need sort of that stamp of approval from like Paradigm or Andreessen or some of these mm-hmm. big ones to, so that they can get like, you know, partnerships so they can get user acquisition, so they can get global market share in whatever products that, that they provide, right? So I think that's something that really the, only the bigger names can do. But I think on the pre seed side, there's quite a lot of work to be done where like a lot of it just early stage conversation, right? Like how do you find product market fit, right? How do you find key hires, right? Mm-hmm. How do you like handhold a lot of these founders to thinking the right way? And, I, and a lot of them are like Web2 people, right? That you really mm-hmm. have like, you know, tell them sort of the ways of Web3 world, but at the same time, you know, putting them in touch with people that they can really work on their products at the earlier stages and really battle test um, what they're doing, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think the whole exchange listing thing is sort of trivial at this point, given the the rise of DEXs and the volume on just on chain and uh, like FTX going down, a lot of the, the major exchange volumes uh, decreasing. Um, so I, I wanted to ask like for, for the companies that you do, invest in well let's say like the pre-seed or very early stage companies um is there like a lot of day-to-day communication with these companies like are you pretty hands-on in terms of like the development of these companies um as they develop a product get to market acquire users stuff like that yeah yeah i mean i think each case varies differently right obviously you know we work a little bit more with the projects that we ultimately lead the investment in rather mm-hmm. than you know, some projects we follow on i remember one of our uh, probably earliest investments was into Scroll, right? Um, now, obviously, mm-hmm. they're a pretty big name project now, but we were the first investor uh, in them when they honestly didn't really have much. And talking with the founders then was really just like, how do we really compete in sort of the, the ever so competitive sort of ZK landscape, right? Uh, how do we put the team together, right? How do we ultimately, you know, go to market and, and talk to some of the marquee VCs, Uh mm-hmm. And I remember like back then, it was just like day-to-day conversations, right? On like how they should approach talking to this investor versus uh, the other, you know. So ultimately, my previous shop, Chiming Venture Partners, they they led their latest round at $1.8 billion valuation along with Tencent, right? So that's like mm-hmm. a marquee sort of win for them. But a lot of what was talked about in early 2021 was just really about the foundational setup of things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is like, you know, beyond scroll as a, uh, as a standalone project, there's many other projects that, you know, we have a weekly catch-ups with that we um, essentially act as almost like a founding team to the projects themselves to really help them on ramp and really help them really build traction in the early stages. I wanted to talk a little bit um, about general crypto gaming, general crypto gaming projects. I come from a bit of a gaming background. I, I know you do as well. Um, I, have a, I have a thesis that in like the bull market in 2020, 
we got like our first taste of almost mainstream adoption of on-chain games. Um, I guess the bi biggest one being, um, I guess Axie Infinity would be the biggest one, like the whole play to earn model. The, the biggest issue I saw with the whole system was that because the bull market was eminent or it was coming up where all these altcoins, their valuations went, went through the roof, there wasn't really time to develop any like sustainable games, you know, like a, a lot of games went to market just because they wanted to capture the upside of like the, the market being so great at the time. But that that leads to a sort of shitty product overall that, that comes to market and it, it gives a sort of bad iteration of, of blockchain gaming. And then as, as the markets sort of cooled down, you see that the value of these tokens, the value of these NFTs, the, the player bases drop. A lot of these people were playing the game as a play to earn model not for you know personal enjoyment but to to make small to medium amounts of money uh, every day so if we are in truly another cycle another bull cycle um how do you see it playing out in terms of blockchain gaming yeah i think um you know obviously the first iteration of anything is always going to be shitty right yeah. so i think ultimately like the play to earn economy or the, the concept of play to earn, like actually is a pretty good iteration of what's eventual to eventually to come. Cause you know, obviously there are a lot of games that are purely fun and, you know, we'll, I love to play without even being able to earn money, even if I, yeah, I did play professionally, but I played it for the love of the game. Eventually I got to a certain skill level that I was able to make money out of it. But mm -hmm. I think that's sort of like where the whole crypto gaming or on-chain gaming is headed towards, right? It's like, there's a lot of games that are simply unplayable if there if there wasn't certain economics involved in it. Like, you know, I know you're a poker player. I, I play quite a lot of poker as well, right? Like poker is almost unplayable if you just play with play chips, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. A lot of different card games. So I think um, the next iteration of crypto gaming is like things that are not only fun to play, but has certain like monetary element to it right that just like a hundred x's or compounds sort of the playability of certain games beyond you know it, it being fun to to be uh, free to earn right so i mm -hmm. think also like the the level you need to be to be able to earn money from a game also drops significantly right like i think back 20 years ago when i was a pro gamer like you had to be like it was harder to be like an esports uh uh, competitive player than it is to like go into competitive like football or basketball or things yeah. like that. Right? So like I think nowadays it's like with sort of advent of you know different streaming platforms, right? Like anyone can almost be a version of pro gamer in their own right, but without having to really excel at certain skill levels, right? You can just be like mm -hmm. a, a, a gamer that's like fun to watch, right? You don't have to be good, right? You could just be someone that's like pretty funny or like you know do some weird stuff. Um, so I think it's like the whole gaming aspect of things is going to allow streamers to uh, much more easily make money from producing really good content, right? Much mm -hmm. like, you know, influencers um, and, and uh, TikTokers uh, in their own right, right? So like, I think the ability for streamers to really um, make money for themselves to make that an entire industry in itself is what's going to push sort of, uh, crypto gaming and Web3 gaming to the next level. And also like, like every single player within a game has an equal chance or uh, has similar chances to make money for mm -hmm. playing the game. Also, like, increases sort of the traction of certain games, uh, the longevity of certain games, and also, mm -hmm. like, uh, increases the incentive structure of those games. Obviously, a lot of these games will take a longer time to develop, and, you know, there will be a lot of busts uh, in between, but I think there will be iterations of different games that come forth that not only is fun to play, but also, like, has really good economics that allow people to 
make it like a day day to day job as well. Uh-huh. So like the, the biggest problem I saw with the previous iterations of blockchain gaming was that I'm, I'm fine with the play to earn model, but a lot of the play to earn models didn't necessarily reward skill, but rather just time spent on the game. So it was more of like a, like a manual labor type chore than a, like a skill-based job if, if you were to, to take that up professionally. The other issue I saw was if a game gets popular, we actually talked about this in the last podcast. If a game gets popular, it sort of prices out individuals that don't have like thousands of dollars to spend on a game. Like if you look at the some of the in-game NFTs for the, the popular games, the, the cost of entry just to play at a reasonable level might start like $1,000, might go up to you know $10,000, which isn't that much in terms of in the crypto space where people are, are moving around the, the, quite a bit of money. But it, it sort of limits the audience that it appeals to, right? Because if, if, if your average gamer is used to paying like a one-time fee of like $20, 30 to, to have a, an enjoyable game to play, and they want to get into blockchain gaming, um, and it's a play-to-earn model where, you know, like there's like you generate tokens you have to buy tokens you have to buy nfts to to improve your status in the game it it sort of limits those people from from accessing blockchain gaming um do do you see a way around this or do you see this as an issue yeah so i i think like i would love to draw up a poker example but um i think ultimately that's only in the current iterations of the current right so i think Mm -hmm. in future iteration of crypto gaming is like you know, you don't necessarily have to have the bankroll to play a certain game at certain levels. Like there will be existing infrastructure that like lends out certain items to you so that you can play and be competitive in, in certain fields, right? So a lot of this infrastructure will be put in place so that you have the tools um, that allows you to just really unleash your skill set. Like for example, like uh, if you're a really good poker player, right? And you can't afford to play at 100, 200 or whatever the, the stakes are at the highest stakes, like you can always get someone to like stake you effectively so mm-hmm. that you drop down to the stakes that you're comfortable in, right? And yeah. you're able to still print at whatever stakes that you ultimately play in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it will be a similar level of concept with, um, you know, crypto gaming, right? It's not always like you have all the items, like you have all the sort of different um, attributes, like you're always going to be the de facto winner, right? There are certain entry points at, at certain game levels that you're able to sort of loop around, right? And you as sort of, I guess, someone that with a lot of resources, you can stake a lot of these, you know, Mm -hmm. minions essentially farm for you, right? So I think like each sort of game will be their own game economy. And like you as sort of someone that is early entry into something can build your own empire from that. But it just like existing infrastructure uh, currently like doesn't support for a lot of these sort of innovative sort of uh, features to allow you to really expand sort of the horizons of like what's available mm-hmm. but I, I think eventually like you know all the tools will be in place so that you can you know enjoy the game without actually having to spend massive amounts of money it's interesting you mentioned the the whole staking aspect of it um so there's a game called step in which i'm sure you're familiar with but the basic model is a walk to earn uh they have in-game nfts um known as sneakers and basically the 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 better quality sneakers you get the better multiplier better rewards you get on your your daily walks so then you generate their their emission token which can be sold for for uh profit on the solana blockchain but anyways there was this whole economy of of people staking other people by buying these in-game nfts these sneakers and then having other people walk around for them so 
would like that they would have. I know quite a few people outsourced the walking to like people in Bangladesh, people in the Philippines and stuff like that, but literally bought whole villages of people sneakers so they can generate profits on, on Steppen. So yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting economy that develops once one of these games takes off. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about blockchain gaming. Um, so in the future, I'd say a lot of the blockchain gaming right now is based on Ethereum, but there's a lot of layer twos that are developed with a specific purpose uh, for gaming, specifically gaming transactions, just because Ethereum layer one based fees aren't really, they can't really support like high volumes of transactions for, for people playing these games. So how, how do you see the the future of gaming, uh, especially when it's related to stuff that occurs on chain? Like, are, are there going to be more layer twos specifically built for a specific game? So is there going to be like a, a few blockchain gaming NFT chain uh, layer twos, or is there going to be like a separate chain specifically for blockchain gaming? Yeah, I mean, I think technologically wise, you know, it's still very up in the air. And that's what makes it so exciting as, you know, crypto investors to be able to invest in sort of under layer layer that can really support the future of Web3 gaming. So obviously, Sui um, is one of the front runners to really be the ones to like unlock this, right? But also mm -hmm. at the same time, we thought Solana was going to be the one that we were able to power a lot of Web3 games on before. Yeah. You know they had their own sort of variety of problems so i think again like this is why you know the space itself is so so exciting and like you know has so so much opportunities left is that like there's no correct answer to this right like there could be multitudes of layer twos that even come out after arbitrum you know, optimism and etc right like that can really overtake the market and be specifically catered to gaming right like mm -hmm. you know dapper really tried to do this but obviously like still yet to be seeing like yeah. what they accomplished in, in in that own right but like i mean I, but i i think as time will tell right so uh, definitely within the next you know three to five years at the latest like we'll be able to see more mature you know gaming technology and and it's also the reason that like really web3 gaming hasn't taken off is exactly so is that like there isn't really good underlying infrastructure for games to be run on where mm -hmm. users have a good experience and user can very easily sort of um, play into the in-game economics of it right so yeah i think that's one of the, the biggest issues especially the the whole technology barrier because if you're trying to capture the gaming market I'd say a large majority of the current gamers playing traditional games, you know, like they, they use Steam, they, they use Valve or whatever, and, and they get their games from there. They're not familiar with the the nuances of how blockchains work, how, um, especially if, if you're required to say, use the Ethereum layer too, like you would have to use Ethereum base layer, bridge some amount of money over in order to buy the in-game items and then perform swaps, learn how to use say MetaMask, maybe learn how to use a hardware wallet. It's seems like the the barrier to entry is is quite high and a lot of gamers just don't really want to go through that process would rather just like log in with the uh, their login password on a steam downloading game and immediately be able to play so it seems like blockchain gaming still has quite a way to go in terms of capturing the the market share of like the traditional gaming companies um, that exist right now i think on the upside though i was discussing this the other day but one thing blockchain gaming has for it is that 
the the more traditional uh, gaming companies are so like rigid in their ways. They're publicly traded companies. Their their CEOs are you know basically boomers. They seem to have a huge reluctance to get into the the blockchain space when they already have the the gaming infrastructure in, in place to develop games. And it seems like a pretty easy leap for them to pr produce like a, a game in their pipeline and introduce some sort of like Web three aspect within the game. But I, I don't think any major game developer has done that or is going to do that. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts on that or what these gaming companies should do? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest issues for you know, gaming development is that like, you know, each big uh, gaming conglomerate is so like siloed away from each other, right? They don't really mm -hmm. share resources, right? Like anytime you want to make a new game, like you have to entirely start from scratch. And like a lot of resources are just wasted amongst each other uh, by them not being as open source. So like, I think the future of Web3 Gaming is also like, it will sort of unravel how easy it is to ultimately make a game, right? Like back when I was playing Pro Dota, right? Like Dota was just created from like a random Wall Warcraft 3 map. Right? Yeah, it was, it was, I, I used to play a lot of Dota, um, but, but back when it was uh, just a Warcraft 3 map, like I, I actually never played the standalone game Dota, but yeah. Right, right, right. So exactly, like that game was just created by just a random dude that like yeah. played Warcraft 3 for fun and like thought like that game could be iterated in like a, a completely new genre, right? So like when you think about like the future of Web3 Gaming, it's like it's not necessarily like you need so much development resources that mm -hmm. you have to, you know, have this massive team, have massive IPs. There's a lot of sort of blockades with regards to like what games can be created and how. Mm -hmm. so, I think in the future it's like a lot of this more templatized or like a lot of these like in-game infrastructure is already ready but mm -hmm. like you have to make it in like a web 3 native way then in the future like people are very easily able to like create different iterations games that they like and attract for mm -hmm. customer base but also be owners of their own you know gaming functions right so mm -hmm. i remember so i created like different tower defenses games and like yeah yeah it was like same and play right like no one really yeah. and like that literally didn't really i think took me like two days or something right so yeah. like so i think a lot of this like we can really think and a lot of this ugc content will then come forth so that you know it's really allowing anyone to be sort of a game creator Creator, right mm -hmm. like giving them the tools right it's almost like right now like anyone can, can create a powerpoint deck right and like yeah the deck we can really resemble what we want to present and and that's sort of our own piece of artwork right yeah. and like a gaming uh, eventually will be done in a way i think where you know people can very easily use the foundational layer to be able to create fun games that they want to play great with their friends or mm -hmm. like they want to for a more mass scale project like a small studio could be using some of these resources and, and really uh, launch and, and distribute right and yeah. also to be able to play internationally as well i think that mm -hmm. then was just like u.s server versus china server or like mm -hmm. you know there's like people weren't able to really engage and yeah. you know way, i think uh in the future iterations of technology like bandwidth will be in the way where like anyone can play with anyone anywhere without sort of too uh -huh. much uh, I, I feel like a lot of people might listen to this and not know exactly what we're talking about here who, who's never played Warcraft but it, in Warcraft which is a, a real-time strategy game there's a custom map function right where individuals playing the game could sort of design their own mini games using like the same native layout of the, the, the game that Warcraft has played so so the game Dota was initially based off of Warcraft the, the characters from Dota were the like same characters but just renamed like the, the graphics were the same but they were just renamed and then the game was designed in a way that played completely different than warcraft and then like games like tower defenses basically tower defenses is 
you build a bunch of towers and then the, there are people that try to run through the towers and you try to kill them all. It's a very simple concept, but a, a lot of these games were specifically designed by people. And then the, there was a whole community. Basically, you could upload these maps online or these games online and other people could could play them and they could give feedback as to the games they liked and, and stuff like that. So th that would be incredible if Web3 Gaming had some sort of custom map layout where there's like a like a modular game where not only people can participate in in the initial game but they can develop their own like nuances to the game or honestly develop a completely different game within a game that people might enjoy more than than the game itself like like dota 2 right now is far more popular than than warcraft 3 despite it being developed from the the same engine as warcraft 3 do you know of any gaming companies that are building sort of that game infrastructure that allows for individuals to you know produce their own variants of certain games i think that's what like really like what dapper is sort of envisioning to do to build yeah. like, a line layer uh -huh. so that eventually anyone can spin up a game very easily but i think it's just like the execution wow. i think the execution from dapper is is not great to say to say the least right right, right. but i think there there eventually will come like you know like immutable x i think is trying mm -hmm. to similar path right like a lot of these sort of, um, you know, games will eventually not only build the infrastructure, but will build like different modular concepts where people, mm -hmm. like, if you want to create a mobile-like game, like use this infra, if you want to create an FPS game, like I think that's like, because of the underlying layer is not even complete. Like it's like people are not able to go really into depth into the application or like yeah. genres of a game, but but that's sort of the next iteration to come that, that uh -huh. people can be able to iterate on, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, it seems like uh, blockchain chain gaming is still it's in its infancy right now where um but you know, like the foundation really hasn't even been built for but also like people like are able to like I think like with the rise of Zed Run like uh a, a year or two back um like it's even able to create like a new genre of like you know sports betting right uh -huh. where it's not necessarily on like real horses or like on like real people playing yeah or basketball right uh -huh. i think that's also a unique creation in itself right and like yeah. people can use like the zed run infrastructure right uh -huh. to build like, other casino like it could be like you know cats right or it could be yeah. like, whatever right like like different types like amongst like i guess horse racing as a concept like that could be iterated into a lot of different formats mm -hmm. I, I think like in that sense then it's like zed run was a success in being like a pioneer in sort of the way that people can reimagine sort of the the, the way of the the digital sports mm -hmm. um, and then from there i think people will create different things that yeah I, i'm actually it's funny i mentioned that because i'm actually quite bullish on the the general blockchain gambling casino type thing so like one of the first uh real use cases for bitcoin back in i want to say like 2011 2012 was there's a gambling site uh called satoshi dice but basically you could flip back and forth and then you, you could gamble up to like a 100x multiplier but the way the site worked was it, it wouldn't be feasible today but, but the, the the way the site worked was in order to place a bet you had to send a transaction across the the, the bitcoin chain and the hash like the last number in the hash determined whether like you won or lost a bet so a big problem with like a lot of these like online casinos is that they're not transparent and they're not provably fair like if you play on like a like a third-party casino and you're playing a, a game like like roulette you're not sure if the the roulette wheel is, is rigged uh, 
against you or, or not. But if all these if all these casinos are built on chain, um, and th there's easy ways of like using blockchain in in order to develop a transparent and, and fair uh, gambling model. So um, th that's one aspect of of Web three crypto. I'm I'm pretty bullish on just because it just makes sense, and like the previous that's iterations definitely. of it um, have been pretty good. Yeah, and I think like uh, spiraling from that, it just I think like different like genres of what people view as entertainment, right? So mm -hmm. instead of watching real people uh, horse race or uh, watching people play basketball or like, yeah. I think like digital formats of like, even like now, like people are playing like 2K21 competitively, right? It's yeah. a little annoying other yeah. basketball players. <laughs> Right, right. And like a lot of these games, I think will then, you know, come to fruition where it's like people are then able to bet on these, you know, different genres of sports. And obviously the whole online gambling thing, I think it's less of a technological problem, mm -hmm. but more of like a licensing slash political slash, yeah. you know, whether, you know, anyone's able to do this without sort of some liability on, on their head. Right. So uh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I think just to see like where that ultimately probably needs some type of licensing um, mm -hmm. in the yeah, I, I think that's a big problem with a lot of these projects is that well, once you get big enough or if you do enough volume, um, then you're like in the eyes of the regulators, right? That they see you doing like millions of dollars of bets every day. Then if you're doing like a couple hundred dollar bets, even if the technology is the same, you'll you'll never get have any issue with regulators. But as you grow and as, as you expand and as maybe you have a marketing budget, you know, maybe you're advertising to certain regions and stuff like that, that then the regulators will really go after you. The the final thing I want to talk about before I let you go is the crypto scene in Asia compared to like the US or or the West. What what differences do you see in terms of of like the markets, the people, just your general thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Asia is definitely its own market. So it, it, every sort of institutional product in the US, like Asia has its own counterpart. And I would say most of the application layer products in Asia are actually significantly better than mm -hmm. the counterparts, right? So I think what's really exciting about the Asian market going forward is that like people are not as affected by a lot of sort of the, the blowups that a lot of the US institutions had to face like FTX, Voyager, BlockFi, mm -hmm. Etc. Um, I think only thing that really impacted was Babel and like Luna, which actually didn't affect too much of like where I'm from, you know, China, right? So I think very bullish on like Chinese retail market really spurring the next bull run because uh, mm -hmm. a lot of people have a lot of cash on hand and like you know with the new sort of Hong Kong regulations opening up and allowing sort of Hong Kong citizens to, to legally trade and, and sell uh, trade trade crypto. I think that's a big highlight for China and I guess APAC region as a whole. And also with like the, the rise of application layer products, right? That's where like, you know, China does its best. And like, that's where the biggest addressable market is. So mm -hmm. um, and really us as early stage investors really looking for a lot of these ability uh, online and mobile, right? So uh -huh. I think a lot of that, um, you know, it's very exciting to see for the next mm -hmm. year or two. And that's why I'm back in Asia now to, to look mm -hmm. for some opportunities and also you know, all, all sort of, all, all the sort of doors are open now um, with, you know, China now opening up the, the visa policies and also like people being able to get in and out of the country. Pretty yeah. easy. It, it's all pretty positive signals, right? 
and uh, literally like every Chinese coin pump like yeah yeah any any coin that's like even remotely uh, related to to China. We 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 actually talked about this in the last podcast, but we talked a bit about the current narratives going on, and and, and one thing I brought up was there's this whole China is bidding again narrative, or, or Asia is bidding again narrative, like the whole re- regulations in Hong Kong being more lax for individuals. Like the 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 Chinese market sitting on cash, looking to bid. What do you think about that in terms of like the the whole narrative that you know I, I see it all the time on Twitter. Like Asia is buying, Asia is waking up, so the the, the market's going to pump at, at a certain time. Like you, you think it's mostly just like just chatter, or is there any truth to to the well, Asian I, markets being different? I think I, I I mean from just history, right? Like Asia or China specifically has spurred almost every bull run in mm-hmm. existence, right? So I think it's less so that like China is waking up or like you know China Chinese investors are buying, but more so just like Chinese investors finally are like first able to buy, right? Like I think like they found new confidence uh-huh. that they're able to re-enter the market. A lot of them were dormant for the past mm-hmm. two years, but it's like China was just so restrictive on policies. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of regulation leeway has allowed a lot of new entries into the industry, right? Okay. A lot of them don't have venture capital access like like us institutional fund managers. So a lot of them just can only participate in the secondary market, right? So uh-huh. they buy the things that they know, which is like the, the China coins, right? Like yeah. they're, that their yeah. yeah, friends did... tell them or like, you know, things like that, right? So a did, lot of did... that, yeah. To me, it feels like it's like a whole different market because like your average Western crypto guy will like log on to Twitter or like read something on Telegram. Well, like China, that they're in like different forums that they're their own, their own Weibo, their own WeChat. They're, yeah. you know, it's, it's just like a, like almost a completely different, like non-connected community sort of trading the, the same assets. So it's an interesting dynamic. So if Asia or specifically China would launch the next bull run, like what is the chatter like right now in terms of what they're bullish on? Like, for example, are, are they bullish on Ethereum and the, the current um, layer twos being developed on Ethereum or they de- are they more bullish on the alternate layer ones? Are they more bullish on like exchange tokens or well, on-chain gaming, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Like even within China, they have different groups amongst themselves, right? So mm-hmm. like I think there's obviously like the big minor group, right? Where like they're extremely mm-hmm. bullish recently on Filecoin, right? Like that's yeah. something that you can very easily explain to your grandma and like they will actually be able to understand like what Filecoin does, right? Like yeah. that, centralized storage so so that's been really taking off in, in the china market because just like the first easily explainable concept to like your very um commoner type of person mm-hmm. right um everything else i think people like uh there's still a lot of miners driving the narrative for for better mm-hmm. or worse right so a lot of it like i think it has to do with like what are the different things that you can mine right so mm-hmm. like bitcoin obviously i think some people are, are even now talking about Leo, right i'm not sure if you know about this project. Mm-hmm, yeah i mean etc was even a thing for 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 like (laughs) so like you know we know nothing is really going on there but yeah so i I think the mining aspect also is like a a big factor in china Mm -hmm. you know knowing that like that's where most people have grown up to to know right Uh, amongst like the more i guess advanced uh stuff i think that's like people are bullish on zk in general right Mm -hmm. that's something that everyone says they understand but they don't really understand yeah 
like a yeah, quarter yeah, of yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to see your average person in China explain to me how how a zk rollup works, and we'll, we'll go from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's definitely like the new thing that people are buying into. Like, it's also something like people, everyone says zk often enough that it will just catch you by the ear, right? So uh -huh. zk is also as like the whole subsector will we'll definitely get a lot of buy-in from uh, you know Chinese uh, consumers. Uh -huh. Yeah, with regards to like gaming and like a lot of the app layer stuff, I think like uh, really like the app layer uh, product itself will drive traction, right? I don't think there's mm -hmm. a particular coin right now that's out there that people can just FOMO and buy into. Yeah. But I think most people really just buy into like a lot of what they existing they know. Um, mm -hmm. Exchange coins, um, I think they've lost a lot of faith into, you know, what decentralized exchanges entail. Yeah. People, there's, but again, there's still a lot of Binance users. So, you know, they're, they're quite, you know, supportive of that, right? Uh -huh. but so, like, you just have, I think, all in all, like, there's different buckets of people supporting different things. Uh -huh. um, and, like, people are very quick into FOMOing into, like, the next big thing. So, like, right now, I think people are just, you know, re-entering marketing, looking for new narratives. And, like, uh -huh. like, this is actually one of the better times to now, like, launch interesting things to get people excited uh -huh. about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I think I think now is like a pretty good time to, if you have like an idea or a project that you've been sitting on to launch and especially if it would capture a large audience or it would, you know, be, be used by a good number of people. Like the, the market seems far more lively now than it did like three, six, nine months ago. Yeah, and like right. the... the 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 downfall of FTX and like the the ensuing bear market. Uh, before I let you go today, um, th thanks for coming on. By the way, it was, it was a great talk. But is is there anything else um, you wanted to mention or anything you wanted to plug, like uh, OP Crypto, your Twitter? Uh... Oh yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, my Twitter is uh, David G A N one eight one eight, and our Twitter is at OP Crypto VC. So uh -huh. yeah, feel free to follow us. Um, you know, we do you know share a lot of the content and insights that we know about not only Asia, but, you know, as a whole venture market in general. Uh -huh. uh, and we also have like a monthly newsletter that people can subscribe to that you can find on Twitter that, you know, we share a little bit more in-depth research and insights on, you know, what we see from at the fund level and, you know, obviously welcome any founders to reach out to us um, for investments or just for general advice uh, in general as you're thinking mm -hmm. of the next thing. That sounds good. So if, if you're listening to this and you're an early stage crypto founder and you're looking for advice or possible investment, you know where to look. All right. Um, that, that's all I have for today. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Right, no problem.